Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio. Not a lot, and I know that there's like a conspiracy behind it, but honestly, that's about it. I honestly think it was his wife because he was having an affair. I think the mafia and the vice president were in on it together. Like, I think I remember it in high school, like hearing that it was like the mafia. I think it was the government. They had something to do with it. Oh, like, like years ago, right? I've never actually like thought about it. Yeah, Honestly, I don't know. Well, I think it was I the last one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Somewhat Skeptical, where we explore the odd, the obscure, and the unexplainable. My name is Elizabeth. Last time, we set the scene for that rainy day in November. If you haven't heard the first episode, please go back and listen. It's a lot to take in, but I assure you it's worth it and will really help to make sense of these next few episodes. Before we get into all the doubts and inconsistencies of that day, let's recap. Over half the country, and myself obviously, have our own questions about the findings in the Warren Commission. Remember the Warren Commission I mentioned in the last episode? An 888-page report containing 552 witnesses' testimonies, all taken within the 10 months following the assassination. So for the sake of finding out what happened, we need to talk about the quote facts. First, a lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald, acted alone in the assassination of JFK. Second, he fired three shots in less than six seconds, ultimately killing the president. Third, two days later, Jack Ruby killed Oswald before any trial and before hardly any questioning. That's it. No conspiracy, no master criminal plot, that's all there is to it, according to the government. So then why is it so hard for over 60% of the country to believe that there was only one shooter? Why is it so inconceivable that Lee Harvey Oswald was so upset with the country and society that he needed a change? And to him, that change meant taking out the president. Why can't we accept that as truth? How can a crime witnessed by hundreds of people, filmed by at least 30 of them, watched by millions on television, and more documented than any other assassination in history still remain so unresolved? A lot of people will bash on conspiracy theorists by saying, if you look hard enough for a conspiracy, you'll find one. Meaning, if you look hard enough for something you so desperately want to be true, the facts will eventually line up in a way that makes it look possible. But I say, there's nothing wrong with looking for a conspiracy if there might be a conspiracy out there. And of all the conspiracies I believe and we've discussed on this podcast, the assassination of JFK is without a doubt the highest probability of a conspiracy. I'd go as far to say I'm 100% sure that there's something they're not telling us. And by the end of this episode... I'm hoping you'll agree. If you're at all familiar with the JFK assassination, then you've heard of the single bullet theory. If you're like me, then you've heard of it, but never knew what it meant. So let's get started. Here's what we do know as fact. Not just what the government tells us, but what we actually know to be the truth. Governor Connolly was hit. JFK was killed. 
And when the wounding of the bystander, James Tague, was unexpectedly made public, the commission became obligated to use the only plausible explanation that would account for all the wounds having been inflicted by just three bullets. One bullet, the first bullet, caused all of Kennedy and Connolly's non-fatal wounds. By entering Kennedy's back, exiting through his throat, entering Connolly's back, exiting his chest, passing through his right wrist, and lodging itself in his left thigh. The single bullet theory. Yes, one bullet accounted for all those wounds. The second bullet caused Tag's wound, and the third bullet caused President Kennedy's fatal head wound. The succession of these shots has been picked apart for decades, but we'll get into that a little later. People were skeptical about the lone gunman theory almost immediately after Kennedy was killed. And in 1967, CBS News tried to get some answers. They put the findings of the Warren Commission to a test. They had a tower and a target track constructed and matched exactly the heights and the distances on that day in Dealey Plaza. The target was a standard FBI silhouette moved by an electric motor at 11 miles an hour and that was approximately the speed of the president's vehicle. 11 different marksmen took turns, firing three bullets each at the moving target. One of the biggest questions the CBS experiment asks is, is it physically possible to fire three rounds in 5.6 seconds or less using the antiquated Manlicher Carcano bolt action rifle? So basically, the weapon Oswald used was a piece of junk It was heavy, unreliable, the sights weren't aligned properly, and it was definitely not a good weapon in this kind of a fight. Out of the 11 men participating in the test, only one was able to get all three shots in. He was a weapons engineer, and it took him three different tries, nine shots total, to prove that it was possible to fire three rounds in 5.6 seconds. In the end, the CBS tests said that it was possible. In a controlled situation, after watching other people attempt the same test, and having several chances to do it yourself, and the sights actually being set right. So my question is, was it really possible? And by that, I mean in the setting Oswald was in. Because if you ask me if the CBS test really proved it was possible for Oswald to fire all three shots himself, my answer would be no. It proved the chances of something like that happening are highly unlikely. So why did the news channel decide to say it could have happened? I'm just speculating here, but maybe they had to make it look like it was possible, because maybe they were forced. The man that fired three shots in less than 5.6 seconds was Howard C. Donahue, and he's an important part to this story. He was a ballistics expert, and after he participated in the CBS test, he concluded to himself that it was near impossible Lee Harvey Oswald was able to fire those shots himself. What began as a doubt for Donahue turned into a 25-year-long obsession to find the truth. After the CBS video aired, a popular men's magazine asked Donahue to write an article backing the Warren Commission's findings. Howard agreed to write the article. His mission was to not get involved with the surrounding conspiracy theories. He was going to take a look at the ballistics and the facts and present information based solely on that. He decided to investigate each of the three shots. 
The first, and obviously the most controversial, was the single bullet theory. Again, it was said to have hit the base of Kennedy's neck, just to the right of his spine, exited his throat below his Adam's apple, struck Governor Connolly beneath his armpit, shattered four inches of Connolly's fifth rib, exited below his right nipple, and crashed through his right wrist before finally lodging itself two inches deep in his left thigh. For many people, the two men's position in the car rules out this theory immediately. Many conspiracy theorists believe this single bullet theory was ridiculous because for it to have been the only bullet, it would have had to enter slanting down at the right rear of the president, pierced his throat, made a sharp right turn, and enter the extreme right side of Connolly's back, and then go back to Connolly's left side. Donahue agreed at first, but he realized that Governor Connolly and his wife were riding in jump seats, and that's a very important detail. These seats were closer to the middle of the car and down much lower than Jackie and John's seats. So if Connolly was sitting that much lower and his body was turned, and we know that his body was turned because we have proof from the home video footage of the assassination, this could make sense that the bullet took that path. Because of that, the Warren Commission's theory could be correct, even though they had the shot's trajectory completely wrong. Now, as I stated earlier, the single bullet theory includes this being the first of the three shots. So just for a second, try to put yourself in Governor Connolly's spot. You were just sitting in the car, driving down the road with the president behind you. All of a sudden, there's a loud sound and a piercing pain through your back, chest, and wrist. You're rushed to the hospital. When you get sewn up, you hear the news that the president's dead and you were sitting right in front of him. Don't you think you'd try as hard as you could to remember exactly what happened? You'd burn it into your brain every single detail of that day before you had the chance to forget and before your memory could be influenced by anyone else. My guess would be yes. There are so many insignificant days in a person's life like a month ago Tuesday, I have no idea what I was doing that day. What I have for breakfast? Did I even eat breakfast? Did I get to sleep in? Did I have errands to run? But when something as big as the president being assassinated happens, it forces you to remember that day. Ask anyone who was alive then what they were doing and they'd be able to tell you. Even more so for Governor Connolly, that is a day full of details that he will never forget. But here's where it gets crazy. Governor John Connolly released a statement in a press conference on November 23rd, 1966, in which he says, My right to see what was happening, seeing nothing, I was in the process of turning to my left, and I was struck by a second shot. The third shot struck the president, but did not strike me. Connolly said he presented this to the Warren Commission, and they chose to disagree with this interpretation and his memory of what had occurred. Roy Kellerman was a Secret Service agent riding in the follow-up car. His name will come up often throughout this episode and the next, so remember it. Roy Kellerman. His testimony also contradicts the order of the shots that were explained by the Warren Commission. 
He heard a bullet, turned his head to his right, heard a voice from the back seat. The president said, my God, I've been hit. Now, how could he have done that if the first shot went through his throat, as the commission said? Many witnesses said they saw the first shot hit the pavement and ricochet off. That would have been the same shot that hit James Tigg. Is it possible that a fragment from that bullet hit Kennedy and caused him to exclaim, my God, I've been hit? If that's the case, then the Warren Commission would have gotten the order of the bullets wrong, which isn't surprising. Dr. James Humes was the pathologist in charge of the president's autopsy just a few hours after the assassination. In his findings, the bullet had exploded into 30 to 40 dust-like fragments, the bullet that ended up killing the president. So how did one bullet go through two men, causing multiple wounds, go through four inches of rib, remain relatively intact while one bullet going through the president's skull basically exploded? The answer is actually really simple, but it also changes absolutely everything we're told to believe about the assassination. There were two different guns. The one that exploded was a frangible bullet designed to explode violently upon impact. It's impossible, absolutely impossible, to get one shot that goes straight through and one that blows up from the same gun and the same ammo. A full metal jacket bullet drives straight through, as did the first bullet, or what is supposedly the first bullet. The frangible bullets have an exploding effect. According to the autopsy report, the diameter of the entrance wound is 6 millimeters, and the bullet tunnels for about 15 millimeters before fragmenting. The bullets from Oswald's gun are 6.5 millimeters in diameter. And that may not seem like a big difference, but that 0.5 millimeters is what proves that it was impossible for that to have been the bullet that entered JFK's skull. The kill shot was caused by an exploding fragmented bullet from another weapon. As I said earlier, after the findings of the CBS report, it's basically impossible for Oswald to shoot three shots in 5.6 seconds from his rifle. So how would it have been possible for him to shoot two bullets from one gun and one bullet from another in that amount of time? Well, it wouldn't have been because the third shot was fired by somebody else. So this being the case, why were three shells found at Lee Harvey's perch? One of the shells was away from the other two, far enough that it was noticeable, and it was dented. Chances are it was getting used as a chamber plug, meaning it stopped moisture and grit from getting into the chamber of the gun. There's more evidence from the crime scene, and I'm not going to bore you with it right now, but it supports that Oswald ejected the shell before taking his sniper position at the window. So from here on out, we're going to say that the fatal head wound didn't come from Oswald's gun. So then where did the frangible bullet come from? Well, the trajectory from the book depository was 16 degrees down and about 6 degrees right to left. Even if Oswald's angle lined up, that would suggest that the exit wound would have been somewhere on the left side of his face, maybe his forehead or his nose, but definitely not the upper right portion of his skull. 
Because of the angle and the entrance and exit wound, it could be concluded without a doubt that the fatal head wound did come from behind JFK, but from a much lower angle than the sixth floor of the book depository. The headshot came from somewhere behind and to the left of JFK. Dr. Russell Fisher, Maryland's chief medical examiner, was appointed by the attorney general to re-examine JFK's autopsy. He found that the entrance wound was mislocated. He said it was actually four inches higher than originally thought and an inch to the right. So with this new information, new photographs, and a new trajectory level, it's just not possible that the head wound came from the sixth floor of the book depository but from much lower down and behind him where the Secret Service follow-up car was. After Donahue discovered that, he wrote to the Secret Service and asked them for the names of the agents in the follow-up car, what weapons they carried, and the caliber of those weapons. The Secret Service responded, and they said they don't disclose that kind of information. All they could say is that the agents were issued .38 caliber revolvers. The letter also adds that none of the agents fired a shot at that time. But then why were there 10 witnesses that reported smelling gunpowder at street level at the time of the shooting? Dallas patrolman Earl Brown was standing on a railway bridge looking down at the motorcade as it raced to Parkland Hospital. He said he heard the shots and smelled the gunpowder. That day, the wind was blowing at 15 miles per hour away from Patrolman Brown and toward the book depository. So it just doesn't make any sense that he would have smelt it unless it came from lower and closer to him. People in the motorcade at street level were adamant that they smelled gunpowder. If all shots that were fired came from the sixth floor of the book depository, then no one would have smelt gunpowder because it would have been blowing back in Oswald's face. One of the witnesses was Senator Ralph Yarborough, riding with the vice president, Lyndon Johnson, directly behind the Secret Service follow-up car. Yarborough was a war veteran with over 50 years of experience with firearms. He reported smelling gunpowder. He stated he always thought that was strange. How could he smell gunpowder from that high in a building? Well, he couldn't. He said, you don't smell gunpowder unless you're upwind of it and it blows in your face. The Dallas police were able to find the best witnesses, people that were willing to give their testimonies that day before their memory could be clouded by outside variables. Hugh Betzner was standing alongside the motorcade taking photographs. He stated that he saw a man in either the president's car or the car behind his pull out what looked like a rifle. But he was not the only one. Senator Yarborough claims he also saw a Secret Service agent pull out a rifle. Even Secret Service agent Winston Lawson testified he saw a fellow agent holding a rifle. And one image captures a Secret Service agent holding an assault rifle in his hands. His name was mentioned several times in the Warren Commission. Agent George Hickey holding an assault rifle 15, pointing it aimlessly around the plaza. And this gun fires the very kind of bullet that killed our president, John F. Kennedy. 
Thank you to our sponsor of this series, Green Shoe Studio, for making what we do every day possible. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and send us your thoughts, opinions, and questions to info at somewhatskeptical.com. Be sure to like and subscribe and check out our next episode, which will be the final podcast of the JFK series. And as one of our listeners said, may the somewhat skeptical banner of skepticism wave forever in podcast land. Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio.